So I have my Bible. When you and I open up our Bibles in order to read something, I mean, inevitably, oftentimes we open it to the middle. Um, or if we want to open to the New Testament, we, you know, go three quarters of the way. Or if sometimes we decide we're going to start reading the Bible in the very first pages of the Bible, we, we turn here. Um, but you realize how rare it is that we actually turn to the very last pages of the Bible? Like nobody, I, nobody really does that. Nobody that I can think of does that in their regular Bible reading. And it's a shame because the image that we get here, this vision on the back pages of Scripture, is it's really a passage we need to read over and over again. We don't read it frequently enough. Um, and it would do us such good if this was part of, I would get, maybe our monthly reading. Um, turn to the last two pages, three pages of the Scriptures um, the vision is given to the Apostle John by an angel as he languishes in exile in a prison colony on the island of Patmos. Patmos was a, a desolate, rocky outcrop about 35 miles southwest of Turkey in the Aegean Sea. The Romans would send political prisoners to Patmos in order to you know, wash their hands of them and to work them to death in the stone quarries on the northern end of the island. Uh, I've seen pictures of Patmos. It is, it's miserable. It's home to nothing but seagulls, rock, and wind. That's it. And John is on the island, you know, of course, for his, because of his preaching of Jesus Christ and the gospel. Here's what I want you to do as I read the passage. Try to, just as best as you can, envision what is described here. There are in this vision many moving parts and many different flashes of color in your mind's eye. Just do the best that you can in terms of capturing what God shows John. Try to see what, what God wants John to see because that's what he wants us to see. 21.1 Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth, that is our world, had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. No longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. One of the seven angels who had the seven bulls full of the seven last plagues came and said to me, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a mountain great and high and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. It shone with the glory of God, and its brilliance was like that of a very precious jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had, had a great high wall with 12 gates and with 12 angels at the gates. On the gates were written the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. 
There were three gates on the east, three on the north, three on the south, three on the west. The wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. The angel who talked with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city, its gates, and its walls. The city was laid out like a square as long as it is wide. He measured the city with the rod and found it to be 12,000 stadia in length and as wide and high as it is long. The angel measured the wall using human measurements and it was 144 cubits thick. The wall was made of jasper and the city of pure gold as pure as glass. The foundations of the city walls were decorated with every kind of precious stone. The first foundation was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth ruby, the seventh, how do you say this, chrysolite, chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth turquoise, the eleventh jacinth, and the twelfth amethyst. The twelve gates were twelve pearls, each gate made of a single pearl. The great street of the city was of gold, as, a pure, as pure as transparent gold. I did not see a temple in the city, because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city does not need the sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and the Lamb is its lamp. Then the angel showed me the river of, wa- me the, river of the water of life. As clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing twelve crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city and his servants will serve him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever. Amen. Revelation is what scholars call apocalyptic literature. Apocalyptic, uh, apocalypse. You know, the trouble with that word is it, uh, it, it suggests to us a post-nuclear war dystopian universe where uh, there's a whole lot of doom and gloom. I and mean, that's what we think of with apocalypse. But uh, actually, and I think Brian, I'm sure Brian said this in his Sunday school class, this last uh, go-around in Revelation. I mean, the word simply means to reveal or to uncover so in the Greek, apocalypsis is the word revelation. The title of the book is apocalypsis. And it's because the angel is drawing aside the veil that separates us from this future to reveal uh, a something that is, is beautiful and complex. Uh, it's not a simple sketch. We, we might say this is an example of surrealist art rather than representational art. It's... Um, It's more of a Salvador Dali than it is a Rembrandt. It's it's kind of a a dream as you're trying to recount a dream and how dreams morph into new scenes. Or it's uh, like someone uh, describing computer-generated images that are shifting on a screen. 
Well, here it is. Only in apocalyptic literature would you get this. That at long last, the wedding day of the Lamb is here. We talked about the wedding supper of the Lamb last week. The heavenly organ plays the first few bars of Here Comes the Bride. And all of creation stands to look at her. But instead of a bride walking down the aisle, instead, we find a city in a dress. (laughs) A city that descends from heaven, a sparkling Kind of like she's in a wedding gown. What is God preparing for us? What's the future that he has for us? Well, this is an intrinsically social vision, isn't it? This is an urban vision, uh, or an urban future, where people live close side by side. So you have the picture at the beginning of your bulletin of the city of Jerusalem, or the kind of a representation of what the new city would look like. You know, the way that the old city of Jerusalem was laid out, people were squashed in there. I mean, it was definitely apartment-style living. Your room, your house was, you you shared the same walls with the guy right next to you. You were all all squashed in inside. Um, Everybody was packed in. And that's one of the features of big cities that a lot of people dislike, isn't it? Um, Some people think of cities entirely in terms of being overcrowded and high in crime and vandalism and pollution. It was the French existentialist philosopher Jean-Paul Sartre who said, famously he quipped, hell is other people. (laughs) Hell is other people. Well, Well, heaven is other people too. In close proximity together. See, notice John doesn't say, Behold, I saw the holy suburb coming down out of heaven where everybody has their own yard and and room for their campers. Or behold, I saw the holy national park coming down from heaven where the buffalo roam and the plains. Now he sees a tightly packed urban center. What would it be like to live in a city where everybody got along? What would it be like to have perfect community and communion? All the sinful barriers that separate us are gone, and every relationship turns out to be of perfect, infinite, deep love. We sang earlier this morning, oh, the deep, deep love of Jesus. What would it be like to live in a city where everybody is reflecting to you the deep, deep love of Jesus? See, if those conditions were met, you'd want to live in a city like that. You'd want to live in the closest proximity with other people possible, in the greatest density possible, because as one author puts it, the more dense the population, the more wonderful the love when all the sin is gone. Yeah, in this world, cities are good and bad because people are good and bad. But in the next, we're going to want to live as close to one another as is as is physically possible. It's also noteworthy, you know, Shelton talked about C.S. Lewis earlier in C.S. Lewis's picture of hell and the great divorce. What is hell? Do you remember how people live in hell? Everybody lives, lives spread out as far from one another as possible, which is just the antitype of the heavenly city. Now, this is an intrinsically social vision of the future. Verse 11, let's unpack some of the details of this city as we go along because there are so many fascinating and interesting um, 
pieces of symbolism that are in this, in the city. Uh, verse 11, we read that she shone with the glory of God and her brilliance was like that of, very, of a very precious jewel, like jasper, clear as crystal. If you've read through Revelation before, you may have caught it that the throne room of God, the very throne room where the Almighty dwells right now, is covered in jasper. You say, well, what's jasper? Uh, In my home, jasper was the name of our beagle. (laughs) But in heaven, um, no, I guess maybe, are there jasper jasper stones in the world here? I think so. It's a white stone. It would be like a white opal. Or it would be like a diamond before they could cut diamonds perfectly symmetrical because they couldn't do that in, in their day. So diamonds weren't perfectly clear. They were white. It says here that the city is clear as crystal, but that's a little misleading because, again, when they created crystal back in the ancient world, they didn't have the technology to make it perfectly clear. Crystal wasn't super clear. What crystal was, it was sparkling. And so the city here, the picture is of a city of of sparkling luminescence. If you've ever been up on a high mountain lake in Idaho, um, and it's at the right near the end of the day or at the beginning of the day when the sunlight is hitting the water surface at just the right angle. You know what I'm talking about, don't you? And the entire surface of the lake is just a glittering gemstone, one giant glittering gemstone. That's the picture of the city here. That is, it, it's like she's a shining, she is wearing a shining wedding gown, like a glittering wedding dress that has been prepared for her as she walks down the aisle to her, her awesome groom. Verse 12, it had a great high wall with 12 gates and with 12 angels at the gates. On the gates were written the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. Verse 14, the wall of the city had 12 foundations and on them were the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. So here you have the old covenant people of God as represented by the 12 tribes of Israel and the new covenant people of God um, all brought into the same city so kind of the New Testament vision, you know, of our churches, our churches are supposed to be places where there's no longer Jew or Gentile, male or female, uh, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but we're all supposed to be in here together. We're, I mean, the church in, in the Bible is supposed to be like the most diverse body, uh, the most diverse place you could go uh, one day a week, um, that, of course, doesn't characterize our churches very much. I mean, our churches are sadly uh, largely segregated. And we don't, we have not achieved this, this vision. Well, this is the vision. It is achieved then. Old and new, um, we're all together in a city. But later says the gates are left, in, left open all of the time. The city gates of the city of Jerusalem, new, the new Jerusalem, are never closed. You know, that would be, have been also unheard of in the ancient world. If you had a city whose gates were never closed, then you're going to be plundered and ransacked. It'd be kind of like going on vacation and leaving uh, your car keys in your unlocked car with the front door of your house wide open. It's, you're just asking somebody to come and, and steal everything from you. But here, the city's gates are never closed. Why is that? Simply because she has nothing to fear. 
This is the city of do not fear. You know, the most common command in the Bible is do not be afraid, do not fear. And this is the city that's the uh, fulfillment of that. Everything here is safe. Verses 15 through 17, the angel then proceeds to measure the city using a golden measuring rod, uh, which the length of it would have been about 10 feet in length. Um, That's, I think, what a stadia is. So you end up measuring it. You find that the city has a strange design. It is the same in length and width and height. So it's 1,400 miles by 1,400 miles by 1,400 miles. It's one giant perfect cube. One golden, glittering, giant cube. You say, well, where else in the Bible do you find a golden, shining cube? Anybody want to take a stab? You say, the Ark of the Covenant? No. No, because that was a rectangle. And the only place in all of the Bible that you have a, a perfectly cube uh, proportion that has a lot of gold in it, it turns out to be the Holy of Holies, the inner sanctum of the temple, the inner sanctum of the tabernacle, the place where God, uh, his physical address uh, was on earth. Um, One pastor likened it, you know, when a child writes a letter to Santa Claus, that letter is going to be delivered to the North Pole. Well, back in that day, if a child were to write a letter to God, that letter ought to be delivered in the holy of holies, the most holy place. And so you have a city that is just one giant holy place. Um, no longer are those the restrictions where priests can only enter into the holy of holies once a year and through the um, uh, sprinkling of blood. But I mean, now the suggestion is everybody inside the city is a priest. What about the significance of the 12,000 stadia, the, the measurement that which that's what translates to 1400 miles when well, apocalyptic literature almost all of the numbers are symbolic so you have the number 12 number 12 represents the people of god then you have the number 1000 1000 in the bible does not mean 999 plus 1 1000 is a, a a number that that demonstrates fullness and completeness. So you have 12,000 stadia. That's 12 times 1,000, or 12 times 10 times 10 times 10, 10 cubed. It symbolizes the completeness of all of God's people made up of the old covenant community and the new covenant community into this place. Now, interestingly, I hope I'm not um, getting too... Uh, detailed or minute for you. But if you take 12,000 and you multiply that by 12, what do you get? 144,000. Is there any significance to that number in the book of Revelation? Well, there sure is. In chapter 14, there are 144,000 elect of God who are saved. If you ever wonder why the Jehovah's Witnesses are walking down your street and coming to your door handing you a Watchtower magazine, it's because they believe that there are only 144,000 people out of all of humanity who will actually be saved at the end. That the New Jerusalem 
will only have room for 144,000, and, and they want to be one of those. But of course, that's not what it means at all. It's a symbolic number that's saying, all of my people are here. Not a single one of them is missing. Uh, prodigals are here, and priests are here, and apostles are here, and lost sheep are here. It's Jesus' way of saying, hey, I left the 99 to go find the one straggler, and I brought him in, and he Everybody is here. That's the one comfort you can have um, when you're thinking about your kids who may have walked away from the Lord or you're thinking about a family member you're not sure if they're really saved. The comfort in this picture is that all of God's people make it. All of his people are there. And he knows, uh, you know, he, he knows them by name. Verses 18 through 21, it gives us these spectacular building materials that are used. And if you want to look with me in verse 19, we read, The foundations of the city walls were decorated with every kind of precious stone. The first foundation was jasper, the second sapphire. I'll just run through these. Agate, emerald, onyx, ruby, chrysolite, beryl, topaz, turquoise, jacinth, and amethyst. Is there any place else in the Bible where you end up having 12 different colored gemstones all kind of gathered together? Yeah, there is. If you recall, the breastplate of the high priest had 12 gemstones. And each of those gemstones represented one of the tribes of Israel. The idea would be that the priest who has the people near to his heart walks into the Holy of Holies, bearing the people whom he loves into God's presence, into the holy place. And so again, it's, it's saying to us, this is a city of, uh, of priestly bliss. Tim Keller has a great illustration of how we should think about this. He, he says, if we were to take a picture of Pikes Peak in Colorado, now this is a non-representational <laughs> form of Pikes Peak in Colorado. We take the picture, we crumple it up into a ball, then we open it back up, and we, we look at it. Can we still see Pikes Peak here? Maybe. <laughs> you hold it up next to the real Pikes Peak. You look at the real one. Is there a difference between the two? Yeah, of course. The, the, the difference is so vast. The real Pikes Peak blasts your senses. You see uh, it's infinitely more absorbing and beautiful and vivid and multidimensional. Whereas this picture, or if I had a good picture, this picture is accurate, but, it, but it, it barely even begins to scratch the surface of the real thing. And I think that's what's part of what's going on when the Bible asks us to imagine what heaven it's life, like. It'll say, it's like this. Imagine it. Use your... Use your imagination. I preached sermons on it the last few weeks. It's like this. It's like this. Go ahead and imagine. And then on the other hand, the next moment, it's, it says, sort of, psych. It's infinitely better. It's infinitely beyond what you've thought it, thought of yet. It's so fantastical. Like, even when it tells us to imagine, it tells us to imagine gold that is translucent and transparent. Well, I mean, 
There is no such kind of gold. It tells us to imagine gates that are giant pearls. Well, there's no such thing. Like the images are so fantastical. It's kind of its way of saying, be imaginative and then just realize, man, it's going to blow your mind. It's going to be so good. There are several things that are missing in the new heavens and the new earth. There's four, and I want to go over them really quickly with you. Number one, there is no longer any sea, no, no longer any ocean. For many of us, that's an appall- appalling thought, because <laughs> we love the sea. We love splashing around in the ocean. Why would God do away with, with uh, the ocean? Well, And the the Jews saw the sea very differently. To them, the sea represented the forces of chaos. If you look earlier in the book of Revelation, the beasts, the demonic forces of tyranny are are coming up out out of the sea. There was something ominous and malevolent about the ocean in the Jewish mind. Um, You could say as long as the sea remains, then there's the possibility of a worldwide flood, as in the days of Noah, to engulf uh, the planet again, or you know, your, the sea is a place where you send your loved ones away. They sail off, never to be seen again. Um, there's no sea, not because God doesn't love the ocean, but the picture is there's no more separation. There's no more danger. There's nothing to fear. There's no more chaos. There's only harmony. Secondly, it says that there was no longer any sun or moon. Uh, Again, we think that's appalling. We love the sun and moon, how we love astronomy. Um, Why did God want to nix astronomy? It would be really strange for God, of all people, to nix astronomy because, I mean, you look above. He didn't have to make the universe as grand and as magnificent as it is. Like, he didn't have to create the astronomy that's up there. He could, we probably could have gotten along with a galaxy with like one, one or two planets in it. But, I mean, look what he gave us. So, no, the, it's not like God's doing away with astronomy. What he's doing away with is the transitory nature of light. Like, for us, it, light goes on and off, on and off, day and night, night and day, summer and winter. It's on and off. Um, but in heaven, the lights are always on. <laughs> The glory is always on. It's, we were going to see the unshielded radiance of the face of God and behold him face to face. You know how many times it says in the Old Testament how nobody can see my face and live? Here it is. We're going to get the unshielded glory of God and the glory will always be on. Imagine what that will be like. Thirdly, then, of course, there's no night both in the physical sense and in the metaphorical sense. There is no darkness. There is no night. There is no evil. Every trace of evil will be erased. It says there's nothing impure. There will be no more curse. There will be no more tears. There will be no more mourning. There will be no more crying. No more funerals. No more rapes. No more robberies. No more broken homes. No more broken hearts. No more broken dreams. No more physical handicaps. No more wheelchairs. No more strokes. No more fights. 
No more head injuries, no more canes, no more blindness, no more deafness, no more arthritis, no more diabetes, no more missiles, no more bombs, no more terror, no more separation, no more goodbyes, no more bankruptcies, no more curse. He will wipe away every tear from our eyes. You realize what that suggests? It it suggests that we, we show up with tears. We're not going to cry there. But if he's going to wipe away every tear from our eyes, then it means we show up there. Of course we do, because this world is just one <laughs> big sadness. It's a terrible sadness. But all of those, every you know, trace of tear on our, on our cheeks will be erased. You know, if all of that is really true, if the deepest longings of your heart might actually be fulfilled someday because Jesus Christ is alive, he's been raised from the dead, I can't imagine, is there any good reason why somebody wouldn't investigate to find out if the resurrection is true? If all of your deepest desires and longings are going to be fulfilled, if the resurrection is true, I can understand why someone would conclude that the resurrection is not true, but I can't understand why you wouldn't want it to be true or why you wouldn't investigate it in order to find out if it's true. Fourthly, from verse 22, I did not see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. I did not see a temple in the city. So to give you a little foretaste of our Peter Lightheart conference coming up, Peter had the, uh, one of the most incredible observations on, in this text that I have ever read before, so I'm just going to read it straight to you. I did not see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city is not a temple for God. God is a temple for her. You realize that inverts everything that the world had known about temples and gods. I mean, all through human history, uh, the gods come down to earth. They meet at some place on earth, and humans build elaborate sanctuaries to house them. But no, this whole image is getting inverted. God is the temple to house us. The gospel teaches us Jesus, God in the flesh, comes to dwell among people, but that's only the beginning of John's story. The end comes when men, when men, women, boys, girls dwell in God, when God becomes the holy space for his created, glorified bride. God has finally made his home with men, not when the word pitches his tent and dwells among us, John 1, but when God has finally tabernacled among us when we pitch our tent in him. That blows my mind. What does that even mean? It's got to be good, (laughs) whatever it is. For, For God to be the temple in which we dwell... Again, I think it's, it's using language that is so fantastical, um, we can't even get our minds around it. So to kind of finish up the sermon, what should we take away from all of this vision? Well, we know 
what the original readers of Revelation were facing. And I, I wrote that in the pre- reflection and preparation at the beginning of the bulletin. I mean, they were facing having their goods plundered, being put in prison, being put to death. They were facing the lions in the Colosseum. There was so much, there was a great deal of suffering coming to them. They were on the precipice of more suffering than anybody else in this room is, is going to face. What do you do for a people who are going to face suffering like that? How do you get them ready to suffer like that? You give them hope. See, hope is something you expect in the future that actually enables you to, to handle the present. You give them hope. And here's our hope. Our hope, and this is the truth, is that 99.9% of all the blessings of the Christian life are going to be in the world to come. And if you don't agree with me on that, uh, talk to me in 10,000 years, and (laughs) I'm sure I'm going to win the argument. 99.9% of the blessings of the Christian life will be in the world to come. So what that means is that the worst this world can throw at you is like 70 or 80 or 90 years of pain. That's the worst it can do. You know, we can say, if this is true, we can say, I may have some trouble. I may have pain in my 80 years here. But what is that compared to the glory that shall be revealed? I may have terrible debts. I could be, I could be bankrupt today. But the greatest debt, which is sin, has been forgiven by the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Isn't it interesting? The, the very last image that God wants to give us of Jesus is not... Um, Jesus the shepherd, it is not Jesus, it's Jesus the lamb. It's the lamb who is on the throne. If you believe that this is true, then right here you have something, a hope, that can enable you to face anything. You have a hope that can enable you to face anything. 22.1 The final image. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life as clear as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life bearing 12 crops of fruit yielding its fruit every month and the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. You remember back at the beginning of the sermon series early in January the uh, tree of life was in the middle of the garden of Eden And from the Garden of Eden flowed a very large river. It was large enough, it was not a small tributary, large enough that it branched out into four other rivers. Well, here we have the Tree of Life, uh, two of them. Or I even wonder if if the suggestion isn't that there are trees of life all planted all the way along on both sides of the river, you know, all the way kind of like the cottonwoods are here on the Boise Greenbelt, just tree of life after tree of life. Um, every time I walk on the Greenbelt, that's the image I have of the river that flows through the city. So we have one here. Um, and the tree of life, it bears fruit, 12 crops of fruit each year, which means that there's no possibility of death. You're like always able to eat this fruit. And then it says, use this medicinal image. The tree's leaves, they are for the healing of the nations. The leaves, don't they, remember in um, the Lord of the Rings where the, the special aloe plants that they used, that uh, Strider, Aragorn used to um, cover the wounds of Frodo 
It was, he had to go out and get leaves. You know why Tolkien decided? It's because the leaves of the tree are the poultice for the healing of the nations. So the way that Jesus begins his ministry is he says, go and make disciples of all the nations. And the way the Bible ends it is by promising that all of the nations will be healed. They'll be healed. And there'll be so much that needs to be healed. There'll be World War II and World War one and probably World War Three and World War Four, and there are so many memories that we have in this life that you just want to erase, aren't there? There's so many wounds that you carry, and they will be healed. The story ends happily ever after. <laughs> you know why that? Why we expect that from our greatest fairy tales? It's because this is the fairy tale that's true. It does end happily ever after. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we now ask that you'd help us to understand how great our hope is and help us to begin to live in accordance with that hope. We ask that you would now begin to make it not just an abstract belief in our heads, but a living reality in our hearts so that we can have the contentment and the poise and the humility and the joy of people who understand their future in Christ. So help us here at All Saints to be a people like that, rooted and grounded in the grand story that you have written. We pray this in Jesus' name and God's people said, amen.